Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. Hey, so we're going to wrap up the inheritance series. I'm excited to do that with you all today. Um, jump in your word. Open up your Bibles. Hebrews 11, verse 8. I'm just going to dive right in. So catch up on the screen if you're still flipping. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. I and mean, we could just stop right there. Obeyed and went. Even though, I wish my children would do that, even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. If you skip down, it says all these people being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, all these people were still living by faith when they died. What a testimony. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Jump to 16, it says, they were longing for a better country a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. He's prepared a city for them. In Revelations 21, we get a glimpse of what this city is that God has prepared, not just for them, but for every one who confesses their faith in Jesus Christ. It says in Revelations 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. And their God would switch, switcheroo. Here I am. If you keep reading this section of uh, Revelation 21, it goes on to tell us that he's going to wipe away our tears. There will be no more pain, no more death, and that everyone who is victorious gets to inherit all of this. So I just gave you a snapshot into what the fullness of the inheritance is that we get to take hold of one day. And in Hebrews 11, it gives us this convicting picture of these patriarchs of the Old Testament who died. They breathed their last breath. I think of the old lady on the Titanic for some reason. Her last breath still filled with faith despite the fact that they actually never took a hold of, took possession of what was promised to them here on earth. And I'm like, how? How did they live so full of faith and constant state of tension of living in the not yet? How did they die living such great faith, constantly living in a tension of transition? And it's because Hebrews tells us they didn't stay looking to see what man was building them for here on earth, but they held an eternal perspective. And they looked to the city that God was building for them in the hereafter. 
Now, Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has placed eternity in the hearts of all man, which means all of us has this eternal longing. We all hold this divinely implanted awareness that this world is not our home. And these guys, they believed it so much that Hebrews tells us they confessed to being strangers, foreigners, not just of a promised land, but of the entire earth. Now, we have good news because we don't have to wait until we get our angel wings and fly off to heaven in order to feel at home here. But rather, Philippians 3.20 tells us that we are citizens that we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Christ lives. And so you and I, we don't have to sit back like Abraham, looking off and welcoming our inheritance one day from a far distance, but rather we get to right now here in this place in the South Bay, we get to take hold of, we get to experience the tangible deposit of the promise that is the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians 5 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit, He is uh, been given to us as a deposit. He is the deposit that has guaranteed the fullness, that picture in Revelation 21, that is to come. He is the down payment. So the gift of the Holy Spirit, in essence, is the promise of proximity to the promise. The Holy Spirit is God's presence, his dwelling with us amongst his people. And so I want us to comprehend this idea that yes, you haven't lost your mind, you are here on planet earth, but we are also citizens of the reality of heaven up there. And so we don't have to sit back and wonder what Sim City God is building for us up in heaven one day to take hold of, but rather we get to, as uh, Christ believers, people who have been given the Holy Spirit, we get to put on our construction hats, we get to roll up our sleeves, and we get to get busy building God's kingdom here on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the good news is that we as children of God here today are not Abrahams. We are not Isaacs. We're not a trust fund baby waiting for the clock to strike a certain hour where the funds finally get released. See, God has poured out his spirit upon all people so that we can dream dreams so we can see visions and prophesy not just for our own good but so that at that at the end of the days people will turn and begin to call upon the name of the lord see jesus has given us his holy spirit not just to be a life coach okay if we just go our whole lives narrowing the holy spirit to just be a personal life coach we are missing it Yes, he is our teacher. He leads us into all truth. Yes, he is our, our, our convictor. He's our counselor. But he is also what Jesus tells us in Acts 1.8. He tells the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But don't you go until you have been clothed with power, his Holy Spirit. See, Jesus didn't send the disciples a coach. He sent them his power. 
See, how would you go and live your life here today if you held this revelation that in Christ, we are all trust fund kids, and we have been given full access to the bank accounts? See, Jesus didn't go through death and resurrection to have his power come and sit in a safety deposit box. We are not a vault. We have been called to be vessels. And so we have to make sure that we take hold of that message that Jake taught us, how the kingdom of God comes down so that it can go out. You are not a vault. You are a vessel. You have been given the greatest trust fund of heaven and you have the keys to unlock the full power of it on earth, not just to build our own lives, but to expand and build his kingdom. So I want to talk to us here today about living with the trust fund of heaven. Let's pray one more time and seal this in. Holy Father, I thank you for this gathering of your church. I thank you for every son and daughter in this room. Lord, that you would go and speak to them, that you would meet with them, that you would unveil hearts with revelation, that we would be edified and built up in your name. And God, if you could help us find Mabel's waffle, her lovey that has been lost, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be interceding for Jake's emotional stability if we do not recover Mabel's lost lovey. Okay, so we're going to talk about the trust fund of heaven. Now, I didn't know about trust fund kids until I moved to Los Angeles. I'm originally from Georgia. Apparently, they didn't exist or I didn't hang in that crowd. I remember uh, having a friend who was a trust fund child, and it was very complicated how much money she was allowed to have at what stage. And, you know, you never want to be that kid that just squanders away your trust fund. You don't want to be that person. But the good news is the Holy Spirit is not a gas tank that runs out. He is a well that never runs dry. We cannot overspend him. However, we can misuse him. We can allow it to sit. We can allow opportunities to pass by. We can allow it to be lost. And so for those of us who were at Holy Spirit Conference, I want to encourage us here this morning that we have not been given these tools, we have not been given souvenirs of the Holy Spirit to hold on to, but we have been given an equipping to go out with a mission, our purpose as a church, to make and multiply disciples of Jesus who walk in the power, right? We have a mission here. And so to help illustrate how we steward well what has been deposited into us, we're going to go to the OG trust fund kid himself. I'm going to allow Isaac to be our demonstration of how we steward well what God gives us. Now, I like Isaac. And, you know, Isaac has not one but two parents in the heroes of faith in Hebrews, right? He comes from Sarah and Abraham. And so there would be a high bar of expectation on what Isaac would do for God. I mean, what would the long-awaited promised child to the 90-year-old mother do? And the crazy thing is when you actually look in the Bible, and you look at his story in comparison to the overarching lineage of, you know, the family line leading up to Christ, Isaac's story is like a blip on the radar. Isaac is more of a connecting the dots kind of guy than the one who stands in the spotlight. But I like Isaac. He's an ordinary dude, an everyday pedestrian, you know? He's that supporting role. He's more, um, he's like Abraham's prop for faith. You know, he's the kid carrying the wood on his back, being like, where did the lamb go? Why is my dad holding a knife? You know, he's the, the supporting dad in the background, getting manipulated by the troubled twins and his plotting wife. And so despite being ordinary in comparison to those who come before and after him, he is faithful. 
He is a good steward of the promise that God gives him. Now, Isaac doesn't build a boat. He doesn't wear a coat of many colors. He doesn't wrestle with God. He doesn't split a Red Sea. What does Isaac do? Isaac digs wells. I want to bring you to his story in Genesis 26. We're going to kind of read some, and I'm going to paraphrase some for the sake of time. But starting in verse 1, it says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, who is the king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, for I will be with you. I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. And he begins to tell that oath about more descendants than the stars. You know the story. And it says, Isaac stayed in Gerar. Isaac stayed in the valley of Gerar. Now, can I tell you what that name means? That name means conflict or dispute. So right now, God is telling Isaac, I, I know you want to go down to Egypt because that's where you're going to like find some provision and an easy way of living in this time of famine. But I want you to stay here in the valley of conflict, and this is where I'm going to be with you. Now, if we keep going in his story here, he stays where God tells him to stay, but he's struck with this kind of interesting fear. He's like, my wife is so smoking hot that men would kill to have her. That's a fun problem to have. So he's like, Rebecca, say you're my sister. You know, unfortunately, Isaac, his love language was physical touch. And the king spots, you know, a brother and sister interacting in a way that a brother and sister shouldn't interact. And so he uncovers the truth. He's like, what are you doing? You're going to call guilt down upon us, you know? So they kind of straighten all that out. They, they, you know, the king's like, listen, this is Isaac's wife. Do not touch her. Don't mess with her. And it goes on to tell us that Isaac begins to plant a field in this land of the Philistines. That is the promised land to come for them, by the way. And it tells us that Isaac becomes so fruitful in this land that the Philistines get, they get jealous. They're like, yo, you are prospering more off this land than you should be. This does not belong to you. And so they do what any good jealous person does. They kick him out and they fill up his father Abraham's wells. Now it tells us at this point, what does Isaac do in response? It tells us that Isaac begins to reopen Abraham's wells. And at this point on, in the valley of conflict, Isaac begins to live out the career of a well digger. And it tells us that he would dig a well and there would be conflict over it, so he'd give it up, he'd move on, he'd dig another well, there'd be conflict over that one, so he moves on, he digs another well. I mean, have you ever thought about how hard it is to dig just a hole in the ground, let alone a whole well? But he just keeps going until finally, in Genesis 26, 22, it tells us that he finally finds a well where no one quarrels over it. And he names it Rehoboth, saying, now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish. It goes on to tell us in verse 23 that from there he goes to Beersheba. And that night God appears to him again, telling him, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I will bless you. I will increase your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And there Isaac begins to build an altar. There he begins to call on the name of the Lord. It's there that he puts the tent up that, by the way, he is commended for his faith for doing in the book of Hebrews. And then again, he digs another well. 
From this point, the king comes to Isaac and he says, listen, clearly God is with you. So let's make a peace treaty right here in Beersheba. From this point forward, the spotlight is taken off Isaac and taken to his troublesome twins. So this is all we get about Isaac's story. He dug a bunch of wells in the valley of conflict, except it doesn't really seem like his own story at all. In fact, this story feels plagiarized, cut and pasted directly from Abraham's journey because his father Abraham in Genesis 20, 21 also goes to the valley of conflict. He also, ironically, lies about his wife Sarah being his sister who also quarrels over wells with the king of the Philistines, who also signs a peace treaty in the land of Beersheba, where he also begins to call on the name of the Lord. I'm like, is this some weird generational groundhog moment? Or is this just God showing us like father, like son? And it's so interesting to me at the opening of Isaac's story here in Genesis, God is not commending him the the boy who comes from Abraham and Sarah for his faith, but God is actually calling Isaac out for his lack of faith. And so the first thing we have to understand, if we're going to steward the promise that God has placed within us, his Holy Spirit well, is we have to wash the vessel. In 2 Timothy 2.20, it says, In a large house there are articles not only for gold and silver, but wood and clay. There are some for special purposes and some for common use. Other translations say honorable and dishonorable use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Remember the construction hat and the tool belt? Like, that is what we want to be. We want to be prepared to do any good work, that we are ready to just release and pour out the power that God has placed within us, ready, no matter what valley of conflict we find ourselves in, we are ready. So in this moment, when God says, don't go to Egypt. He is putting his finger on a spot in his vessel saying, you need to deal with this fear, my friend. We need to deal with some poor family patterns that you have picked up on so that I can prepare you to inherit the promise later on. See, Abraham not only had an issue lying about his wife, but he too, when he found himself in the land of Canaan and a famine hit, he too went down to Egypt. I mean, in Genesis 12, 4, uh, Abraham gets called by God to get up and obey, good boy, to the land of Canaan. Four verses later, it says a famine hits and Abraham picks up his stuff and trucks on down to Egypt. In other words, he abandons the promise, forsaking the promise because he wants to go where it's more comfortable. He wants to go where it's a bit easier. And God is arresting Isaac's attention and saying, don't you follow in that pattern. He's doing surgery on the inside of his heart. He's putting his finger on something and saying, hey, I don't want you to walk in this way, in this pattern. We got to take an account for the vessel. What's on the inside of us? What tchotchkes have we collected from our family patterns? Now we can all look at our parents and be like giggle and laugh at what we've picked up from them, right? Like for me, I have this weird gasping thing that I've picked up from my mother. Anytime, anybody, it could be a small child to a grown man. If they hurt themselves, they stumble, they fall. If Jake breaks too hard in the car, it's... (gasps) Like, I can't, it's like, it's just a reflex, like, on your knee. I can't help it. It's just who I am. For Jake, it's not just a love of chocolate. It's in his DNA. 
And it's been passed down to my children. For Isaac, it was lying about his wife, weird. It was abandoning the promise when things got hard. What is it for you? What pattern have you inherited? Is it financial turmoil? Is it poor self-esteem? Is it a negative association with the opposite sex? Maybe it's something more under the surface, like a fear, like it was for Isaac. But I have good news for you, because 2 Timothy told us those who cleanse themselves, those who cleanse themselves will be instruments for a special purpose. That pattern doesn't have to disqualify you, just like it didn't have to uh, control, alt, delete Isaac's name out of the heroes of faith, because God got his attention. God cleansed the vessel, and that is the story of the cross. That is the story of salvation as we have the opportunity not just to be cleansed at salvation, but each and every day his mercies are new, my friends. How do we cleanse? We confess. Now there's sin that we deal with every day that you can just have that moment with God, but what I tend to find is when it's a pattern, when it's a groundhog that keeps popping up its head, we have to go to the power of confession. James 5, 6 tells us, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayers of the righteous are a powerful, good news, and effective. It's going to work, my friends. There is freedom. There is healing for you. Now, to confess isn't just to express my feelings. That's called therapy. Confession is to admit, to say the same thing. That means I see and I talk about my sin the same way that God sees and talks about my sin. And it's in that conviction that we find repentance and we want to turn and go a different direction. That's where we begin to see a difference in our, in our behaviors and we break the pattern. Amen? The second way we're going to steward well the inheritance inside of us is when we hold an eternal perspective. John 4, 14, this is Jesus speaking. He says, whoever drinks the water I will give him will never be thirsty. The water I will give them will become in him a well of life that lasts forever, forever. And so like I told you, after Isaac clears up the misunderstanding about his wife, he begins to prosper in this borrowed land. It tells us that he goes from rich to wealthy. Please explain that scale to me. He goes from like Justin Bieber level money to Elon Musk level money. And you know, the Philistines don't like it. They kick him out and they fill up Abraham's well. And in this moment, I'm sorry, Isaac, in this moment, Isaac goes from the blessed life to the battlefield life. Now, generally, when you make that transition, it's like an abrupt right-hand turn, and it will knock the wind out of you. It will cause you to fall to your knees, and you got to know what perspective. Where are you going to look in that moment? Am I going to fix my eyes on Jesus, the pioneer of my faith, as I go through this valley of conflict, or am I going to look down and nasal gaze at my situation? See, when Isaac looks at what the Philistines just took from him, they took a plot of land that he was borrowing, but they also filled up wells that belonged to the generation, not of today, but the generations that were to come. We have to get a revelation that there is living water in us, not just to pour out to our own selves in this time in 2023, but there is a river in us that we have to keep bringing forth for the generations that are going to come after. 
And that is the revelation that Isaac held. He didn't go back and try to haggle a deal, cut them a profit on his earnings off their land. He said, there is a well that I need to open up. I need to prepare the way for the coming inheritance that God has spoken to me. And so we got to keep reopening wells. We got to keep allowing ourselves to pour out. And we all find ourselves in those times where we're on the battlefield. And spiritually, we feel drained and weak. And so often, we will reach for the shortcut. We will reach for the short-sighted view, the me-minded view. Or what I like to call, we will go for the hot cocoa method of life. When we're feeling spiritually weak, now hear me, take vacations. Please take seasons where you slow down. But when you're spiritually feeling under attack, do not go for the hot cocoa. Hot cocoa method retreats. It cocoons. It looks for the warm and fuzzies. It's like Winston, no matter what the temperature is outside, he is a creature of comfort. He will have on flannel pajamas. He will have on his fleece robe and a, flir- a fur blanket in the middle of summer. Okay? Do not fur blanket, fleece robe, flannel pajama yourself in during the valley of conflict. Don't hot cocoa yourself because let me tell you, though in those moments, you will get a stomach ache. And at the end of the day, it's not refreshing. How often do we do it? I'm feeling drained. I, I just served all weekend. Maybe I'll just take this Wednesday off from prayer. Maybe I'll just, I just need to take a step back right now. In this stepping back, we are cutting off, we become the vault, and we are cutting ourselves off from what God is wanting to move through us. Proverbs uh, eleven twenty five tells us a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Do you or do you not believe there is a living well on the inside of you? We have to be vessels that no matter what valley we find ourselves in, no matter what season, we're going after the well and not the hot cocoa. The last way we're going to steward well the trust fund of heaven within us is we have to keep taking ground. Keep taking ground. In John 7, 8, Jesus again says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. He didn't die and rise again yet. See, to reopen the wells of Abraham, just think about how hard that would have been for a moment. How frustrating. Like yesterday, these things were working. Today, they're a sandpit. But to reopen the wells of Abraham was truly significant. Digging a well and naming a well was claiming a legal right to that well or establishing one's authority over the well. So for Isaac to go and reopen the well that the Philistines filled in was restaking claim, restaking an ownership that the enemy had tried to take from him. Not just for his sake, but restaking ownership for the future. To rename the well wasn't just honoring his dad, but he was actually honoring the authority. He was reinstating his father's authority over that well. For us today, when we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be a witness for Jesus, to keep our testimony alive, we are restaking 
a claim and what the enemy thinks he's already won, the human heart. Taking ground for Isaac looks like digging physical wells in the valley of conflict. Taking ground for us is seeing that wellspring of life bubble up from the soil of human hearts every time someone says yes to Jesus. And when that happens, we get to witness the name of Jesus be a banner over their lives, restaking a claim in what the enemy thinks he won. Listen to me, Ephesians 6 tells us that we don't battle against flesh and blood. We've, we battle against powers and principalities of darkness. It's not easy work reopening wells. It's not easy work digging a well, but can I encourage you? Let's be Isaacs who just kept digging another well. See, from the outside, it might look like he was on the run from the enemy. From the outside, it might have looked like Isaac was the underdog at a disadvantage because he kept having the wells being took from him. But why was he relentless? Why did he keep marking up that valley of conflict with well after well after well? Because with every spring of water that bubbled up from the earth, it was giving glory to God. See, back in the day, a well to actually find water in the earth with a sign, a tangible evidence of God's divine blessing. So even though the enemy thought he might have took it from Isaac, Isaac was saying, you can't undo God's blessing that he's ready to do. I can't put a cork in what God is wanting to bring out as long as we keep taking ground. In Genesis 26, 22, it says, he moved on until he found Rehoboth saying, now the Lord has given us room. Listen to me, you're not gonna die in the valley of conflict. You keep digging wells, you keep pouring out, you keep being the vessel through the valley of conflict and I'm telling you, you're gonna get to space. Eventually God's blessing will outdo human opposition, whatever you're facing here today. You're gonna find peace, just as Isaac did. And as providence would have it, where does Isaac find himself? In the exact same place where his father found peace. He finds himself in the exact same space where Abraham met with the king and drew a peace treaty. And it tells us that Abraham in that moment plants a tree. And he begins to call on not just any name of the Lord, he calls on the eternal Lord. I wonder if Abraham sat there under that tree and began to look to the city that God was building for him. Years later, his son would sit in that spot, this time not planting a tree, what does Isaac do? He builds an altar. He begins to build upon the spiritual inheritance you know what I find is so amazing about the promised land is that maybe these patriarchs never took possession of the physical land, but they took ownership with a well. Isn't it amazing that the first thing that God's people ever took possession of, of the promised land, was a well, a spring of life. And with every well that Isaac dug across that land, it was a prophetic arrow pointing to the name who truly reigned above it all. I love that in this space where Isaac sits, in this space where his father had 
laid the foundation, God visits him again. And he gives him a promise again, except this time the language is slightly adjusted. See, the first time that God meets him when Isaac's wanting to retreat to Egypt, God tells Isaac, stay here, I will be with you. I will bless you. Well, now that Isaac's dug in, he hasn't given up. He's consecrated his heart. He's cleansed the vessel. He's kept the long view in sight. He kept enduring. He kept taking ground. God comes to him in the land where he told him to stay. And God now says, Isaac, I am with you. I am is the promise we hold on to. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus stands before his disciples in his glorified resurrection body and he gives them the great commission, the commission that we all carry to go and make disciples. And he says in verse 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, I am is the confidence that we hold on to, to not be that vault, to not get insecure, to not worry about what people are gonna think. The I am is the promise we cling to whenever we're facing the valley moments of life that we don't get caught up. The I am, that's what we hold so that we can release. Amen. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.